0: We Have Ways of Making You Talk presents One Man's Window, an illustrated account of 10 weeks of war, Malta, April 13th to June 21st, 1942, by Dennis Barnum. Part 3. Foreground. Chapter 11. The Price of Victory. Except for the battle-dressed soldiers who have joined our ground crew teams, laughing together with sun-bronzed airmen, there is a silence on Looker Aerodrome as we wait for the reinforcements. An apprehensive silence, for the enemy must know what's happening. Last night, not a single bomb was dropped on the island. The Germans are probably watching our approaching formations on their radar screens, sending off their bombers to catch our new Spitfires immediately after arrival. We stare westwards into the empty sky above the distant Takali hills from which our Spitfires will emerge. As I glance round at the newly constructed pens, empty and waiting, five minutes pass, ten minutes pass. These new pens are more elaborate than the old ones. Each has one of its projecting arms lengthened and turned across the entrance to give the new planes greater protection against bomb blast. It's going to be difficult to manoeuvre the Spitfires in and out. The pens are built of old petrol cans filled with earth. Sunlight is reflecting on their silver-white metal, horribly conspicuous. Indeed, the whole aerodrome not only appears adorned with a necklace of silver, but has pendant ornaments stretching back into the rocky landscape along the new taxi tracks. Fifteen minutes. We all move restlessly. We are standing at the opening of one of these tracks which extends back from us towards a hilltop crested by a lookout tower among the olive trees. It is flanked by glittering pens all the way. My own particular pen is up there by the tower but the two soldiers of my crew have erected their gas-operated machine gun well away from the trees with a wide arc of fire towards the north. Sudden roar. Four hurricanes in line abreast surge overhead having just taken off from neighbouring Halfa. There go the air raid warnings. Amongst the white clumps of Akak that appear abruptly over Valletta come the 109s, already banking across above us, simultaneously low in the sky to the right of the shimmering hills, cruising slowly towards us, we can see the first formation of Spitfires. This first lot has started to turn in the distance, for they are to land at Takali, 16, perhaps 18 Spitfires circling there, short of petrol after their long flight, some already dropping down to land. Through a diagonal stream of flak, the enemy fighters plunge straight towards the circling plains. There's a rattle of machine guns and four dots streak vertically up into the blue. Another formation of spit circles above us, with their wheels swinging out from their wings, passing in single file towards the other end of the runway. But some enemy fighters are manoeuvring into the sun. Our first Spitfire settles gracefully onto the runway. The second is holding off a little too high. Look at that Spitfire. Oh, be careful of that Spitfire. It drops, bounces drunkenly, but now at last, with its Merlin engine throttled back and popping sporadically, it's running smoothly along the ground. Scotty must have spotted his number, for there he goes, racing out onto the aerodrome. his little legs crisscrossing as he runs, his right hand clutching his tin hat onto his head. No sign of my number yet, but what a din. The clatter of gunfire is louder than the engines, but we can't see a thing. Clouds of dust, red-brown in the sunlight, stirred up by the taxing aircraft, blot everything out. Ah, we've just been covered with dust, gritty in our noses and mouths. Carefully reopening my eyes, I find that a Spitfire has turned into a nearby pen. The pilot is climbing out and Scotty, plump with his May West, climbs in. As the airmen tip the glistening petrol cans, so the original pilot, a young officer, jumps down from the wing route, radiant with smiles. Above the drifting dust clouds, I glimpse two hurricanes as they race overhead. Too late. 109s have swept through another larger formation of Spitfires. A Spitfire drops out. The formation continues towards us, leaving the column of black smoke behind it. The new pilot officer's face has changed from smiles to an expression of astonished bewilderment. With their wheels down, more Spitfires are passing overhead, one after another towards Halfar Aerodrome on our left. Two have passed and we watch the third, the detail of its wings and ailerons, silver against the blue. Two 109s whirl towards it, a sputter of gunfire as blue tendrils of smoke leap from the leading Messerschmitt. Both enemy aircraft swing away, low over the treetops and round the lookout tower. Another burst of fire from the ground, my two soldiers I think. The Spitfire's disappeared. Was it shot down? I asked the new pilot officer. He is clutching the sandbags, his body crouched, head lifted, eyes staring. He doesn't answer. Another Spitfire, lowering its wheels and flaps with probably only a gallon or two of petrol left, creeps towards us through the shell fire. It's descending slowly, oh so slowly, straight and level. A 109 is racing towards it, but a hurricane leaps onto the 109's tail. The 109 and the hurricane turn viciously. As they twist back towards us, there's a blink of white light as the hurricane opens fire. Look out! Shoving the new pilot officer into cover from the bullets, we all fall into a heap. Lifting my head, I watch the Spitfire continuing straight and level over the trees. Thus... One by one, our reinforcements made their individual landings with much less opposition from the Germans than we expected. I have collected my machine. It has been refuelled. Fully equipped, I sit waiting in the cockpit. Any minute, the German bombers will arrive. Any second, the take-off signal. The inner pads of my flying helmet encircle my ears, cutting me off from the noises of battle. The sky looks empty. Sirens? Lifting my ear flaps, suddenly aware of the heat of the sun, I am astonished. But the all-clear is sounding. Why the all clear? Where are the German bombers? Should have been right behind the 109s. Even if they weren't, the 109s must have wirelessed the news of the Spitfire's arrival. Enemy bombers must be approaching in force. In the phony silence, I look around my tiny cockpit, at the black instrument panel with its dials hiding the huge petrol tank with 90 gallons practically resting on my lap. I look at the pale green metal ribs of the fuselage that enclose me. I look at the heavy control column between my bent knees and away into the darkness where my feet in black shoes are resting lightly on the rudder bar. I look at all the hard pieces of functional metal and I wonder, as I always wonder before takeoff, which of them will puncture my body if I crash. Having checked my instruments, I stare forwards past the motionless propeller blades. In the field opposite, there is a labourer cutting hay. Two red lights fired from the tower behind me. As I switch on, my airmen leap to the starter trolley. The sirens wail. I have a swift impression of the Maltese labourer throwing down his scythe, jumping the low wall and pedalling away on his bicycle. Two red lights. Only two. It is the signal for the other squadron to take off, not us. As the minutes pass, I lean forward in the straps examining the northern sky. There's more haze. A few small cumulus clouds have formed, and a large formation of JU-88s is sliding through the AK ack bursts. They're turning and dropping towards Takali. Blast it! They have disappeared behind the tin wall that encloses my spitfire and me. Ginger, one on my airmen team, high up on the wall, gives me a running commentary, but it is quickly over. The all-clear is sounding again. The Maltese labourer returns to his work. From my cockpit, I watch the labourer, wearing faded blue trousers and a white shirt, scything with long horizontal sweeps. Between the two of us, there is a stone wall, and just this side of the taxi track, the slip trench with supplies in it. Looking down on the heaped petrol cans and wriggling belts of ammunition, it occurs to me that should a fierce battle develop, this supply trench would be a target for strafing 109s. Better camouflage it. Calling Ginger up on the wing route, I instruct him to go over to the labourer, present my compliments and ask for a few handfuls of straw. I watch Ginger and the labourer talking. The trench is now camouflaged, but here's Chiefie on his bicycle. I call out to him. Catching my eye, he swiftly props his machine against the wall of my pen and climbing up tells me the news. I learned that he's in charge of the repair pens further back, that several Spitfires have been damaged already, that one new arrival who tried to join up with a 109 over Grand Harbour, thinking it was one of our machines, had a lump blown out of his fuselage for his ignorance, that a new flight commander, having just landed at Halfar, saw his inexperienced pilots being attacked by 109s as they came in to land behind him. He tried to take off downwind to go to their rescue. His Spitfire, striking the top of a dispersal pen, blew up. The sirens are wailing again. Chiefy jumps on his bicycle, but he's quickly overtaken by the labourer. The sirens are quickly sounding the all-clear, a false alarm. I've never heard one on Malta before. Everyone's strung up. The labourer is quickly back, his brown arms swinging rhythmically. Following his example, I get out my sketchbook. But what shall I draw? I can only wriggle an inch or two in my seat, and although I'd like to draw the labourer, he has moved behind a propeller blade. In the mirror over my windscreen, I can see the top of my moving helmeted head. Adjusting the mirror, I can see the whole of my face. Self-portrait. My face is framed by the rim of my sliding cockpit canopy behind me. And, what is more, the two parts of the tailplane of my aircraft, still further back, stick out each side of my flying helmet like horns, as if I were some Viking warrior. I'm no warrior. I'm just an artist suddenly intrigued by an amusing subject. The stupid sirens are at it again. I suppose we'll get orders to fly now that I've got interested in this drawing. My fountain pen is giving me trouble after its knock. There's also a formation of JU88s crawling up into the sky above the top of the mirror. I can't incorporate them into the picture because the upper part of the design is now fixed. I've got to decide how much of my shoulders to include. The 88s are diving over the top of us now. How far, I think, not us. Having completed the harness straps, the parachute straps, the oxygen mask hanging sideways and the wriggling, twisting tubes and wires, I developed the face itself. After 10 minutes of effort, it's still giving me trouble. It's difficult because the eyes are screwed up against the glare of sunlight. Strange face in the mirror. I'm an artist, but that fellow up there is festooned about with the paraphernalia of mechanical war. Sirens again, and the labourer leaving his field, waves to me this time. As I wave back, I'm astonished to realise that it's the warning, not the all-clear. Although I'm alert for the take-off signal, the succession of sirens has become bewildering. One thing is certain, this battle is a complete fiasco. It's not developing as planned. It's damned uncomfortable sitting here. I could be back in a few seconds, come what may, I'm getting out for a stretch.' How pleasant it is to walk round the side of this pen and increase the scope of vision. The fine buildings of the harbour in the distance, yellow and violet against the blue Mediterranean, while in the immediate foreground, old delayed action bombs which still haven't gone off lie where they fell, half buried in rock. Sudden gunfire, roaring engines, shrill scream and rush of bombs. Into the trench, the rock is splitting, splitting, the very fibers of air are wrenched and flung apart. Invisible pieces of rock thump back from the sky, clanging erratically on the corrugated iron. Two objects slither along the ground towards me, stopping short in a vomit of dust. Suddenly, overhead, in a small gap between pillars of dust and swirling bomb clouds, stukers with Spitfires standing on their tails, rolling on their backs in a wild dance of fire and return fire. A stuka bursts into flame, rears up, topples over sideways and plunges into the labourer's field. I look up from the flaming wreck to find that the battle has passed almost out of sight, just a few dots twisting away into the distance. Climbing out of the trench, I glance at the objects in the dust, two huge pieces of bomb casing, twisted silver, gleaming in the sunlight. The all-clear is sounding and here comes my labourer wheeling his bicycle. I join him and we stand together looking silently across the field. We watch the smoke rising from the black heap of broken aeroplane. We look at the red earth craters and we shake our heads over his scattered crop. I can't sleep. I suppose all day long I was strung up for battle and no real battle came. Even when we took off in the late afternoon we did not see much action. After dark we gathered in the aerodrome mess, waiting and waiting for our evening meal. Lying in the armchair to which I dragged myself, I cursed whatever delay kept us from sleep. Finally, we ate the meal. And after a jolting journey in the bus, fell exhausted onto our beds. I felt frightful. My breath was bad, as if I had turned putrid within. I seemed to be building up for a bilious attack of all ridiculous times to have one. Since then, I have been tossing and turning. I threw all the bedclothes off, being dreadfully hot. Now, just after 2 a.m., I'm freezing cold, hunched in the bedclothes, shivering. Enemy aircraft drone overhead. A bomb falls. More bombs fall. But I can't take any interest in these noises. So the night passes. It's pitch dark but it must be time to get up for I can hear the CO cursing that the electric light has failed again. He gropes about, strikes a match and lights a candle. Hot now and lifeless, my body won't obey my will yet I must get up. With a great convulsive effort I'm out standing on the floor. I can't move swiftly. What about washing and shaving? Surely if I throw cold water over myself that will suffice. The shock of the cold water is refreshing. Dressed now my body shivers. The CO leads the way down the stairs with a candle, but I don't feel right. It must be this unshaven state sapping on my self-respect. I'll be with you in three minutes, I call out, as tearing off my shirt, I rush into the bathroom to scrape the whiskers from my face. In the bus now, and I can't understand why I'm not enjoying the cold air that blows through the smashed windows, cool on my hot forehead, like a bathe in an icy mountain stream. The bombing has stopped and we are racing through blue-grey darkness across the valley. Ahead of us, the looker escarpment of hills is a solid black silhouette below the phosphorus pencil mark of the waning moon. My uneasy body seems turned on itself. I feel no quiver of its usual response to such loveliness. On the aerodrome, I've been put in charge of the squadron because the CO has had to go to see Woody in Valletta. I've been watching the eastern sky gradually lighten. The hills to the south of us are reawakening to their rounded three-dimensional existence with pale light flooding across them. But my body is rebellious. From time to time, a great hand within my stomach seems to grip, squeeze and crush all my inner parts. The sun rises inch by inch above the horizon. A wave of heat engulfs us. That pain again, sharp and intense. I bend forward to ease it. With the sun higher above this golden landscape, I've had to rush several times behind the rocks searching for a place, yet I daren't go far lest the take-off signal is fired. I hate this kind of problem, But should I fly with this unknown factor of what my body may do to me next? Should I put someone else in charge? Because I am frightened, I want to fly, but should I go up when I am responsible for the leadership and safety of my boys? Will I be able to think and act quickly enough? Will my tactical judgment be impaired? Doubt is eliminated by putting the question in a different way. Have I a pilot available who would do the job as well or better? I naturally think of Max, a stout-hearted leader and fighter pilot. I call him over, agreeing to take over the formation. He moves his kit into the CO's machine, then we sit together discussing probable tactics. It's now almost nine o'clock, the sun glares down upon us. I'm sitting in an armchair made of petrol cans covered with sacks. I'm utterly lifeless. I may be developing the malta dog that has laid low many pilots and kept the dreaded hue in hospital, so I ask an airman called Grimes, who's sitting on an armchair next to me, about the illness. The bloody dog buggered up Christmas for me. Walking down South East Strip, I was sick seven times, he tells me. As I haven't yet been sick, I feel a complete imposter. I glance towards Max, sitting a few yards away on a pile of yellow sandbags, talking to Scotty. His brilliant May West has the words Spitfire, British, painted on it in startling black letters, lest he has to bail out and gets manhandled as he lands. I stare with mixed feelings. He's an experienced pilot, but I should be leading the squadron. On my right, a crowd of sunburnt irks is shaking with laughter, happy fellows without responsibilities. In the midst of them, the storyteller, an Australian sergeant pilot, one of the new boys who brought a Spitfire from the aircraft carrier yesterday. Four lights, scramble! The airmen leap to their positions. Max jumps for the cockpit of my Spitfire. Up the taxi track, other Spits are being pushed rapidly out of their pens into more accessible positions for starting. Propellers turning, dust swirls skywards. The engine of Max's Spitfire chokes twice before bursting with life. As he begins to taxi out, I run impetuously round the wingtip, leaping up beside the cockpit in the slipstream blast. I hang there for a moment, shouting good luck to him. He smiles, but I can't hear what he says. He lifts a perpendicular thumb as I stand back, lowering his goggles. He races away in a dust cloud. One by one, the Spitfires lift from the ground and thundering overhead, turn steeply on their wingtips, chasing Max, joining formation and climbing away into the distance. The sirens wail from Looker Village. The Spitfires have gone. I wander up the empty taxi track to join my old crew near the lookout tower, but on hearing the growing sound of a spitfire, we turn quickly. It races low over the treetops and away, silence for a brief moment. Then there's the sound of a different nature. Two ugly-looking Messerschmitts are after it. Man the guns, I call to the soldiers. The machine gun rattles as the 109 leader flashes past. Was he hit? Black puffs of smoke choked back into the air behind him. But the Spitfire is returning, cannons and machine guns clattering as it charges at the enemy like an angry dog. The second 109 pulls steeply upward, but the leader noses over behind the trees. Instantly, a smoke cloud explodes into the sky. All is silent again, but for the whispering of the Spitfire's engine as it circles round the monument of its victory. Or ours. Something very strange is happening over towards Valletta. Over Grand Harbour, a grotesque fog of greeny-grey smoke is spreading wider and wider. The harbor smoke screen is vomiting upwards from huge canisters to cover the target area and shield the ammunition ship. Above it stretches the tall belt of thick bronze haze, leaving only a small space of clear blue sky steeply above us. The guns have started to erupt, spattering the blue with shell bursts, and there, in that confined area of sky, a procession of enemy bombers has started to arrive. Five... 10, 16, 17, 23 stukas, with more emerging from the bronzed obscurity, 40 of them now, 50, their pilots obviously straining their eyes downwards, trying to get a glimpse of the target ship through the cover smoke. One after another, they are beginning their dive. Suddenly, without warning, a second and third umbrella of black smoke appear at two distinct levels above the harbour flickering and twinkling with light barrier roofs of bursting shells a continuous violent sound like firecrackers bursting and roaring more and more explosions split their steel in the gathering murk still more guns open fire converging their contribution over the harbour hundreds of enemy aircraft are diving into this inferno spitfires appearing suddenly in the blue following down behind them black dots dropping like stones behind the spitfires 109s what an aerial monument of courage this scene is simultaneously other spitfires in wide formation roaring across our aerodrome at treetop height hurl themselves towards the harbour more fighters are taking off behind us hurricanes and spitfires streaming away in twos and fours into the mushroom smoke still more machines from behind us i can see the frail pilots in their bright may west settling into their seats bending forward in their straps peering ahead as they ride their thin-winged mounts into battle Some of them cly high into the smoke, but others swoop down to lower level to pounce on the surviving German bombers that pull out from the bottom of the maelstrom. An 87 down, someone cried out. There's another, shouts a different voice. And another. High up in the blue, still more enemy planes are appearing, searching, plunging downwards. More Spitfires are after them. There goes a Spitfire, leaping onto its prey. It's hit by a bursting shell. Oh God, snapping in half. The Spitfire gyrates violently and disappears. A parachute has opened in the middle of the Holocaust. It's floating, floating, slowly floating through the dark luminous layers of bursting shells down, slowly down towards the bomb bursts. It looks as if it's all over now. The anti-aircraft levels are no longer boiling with movement. There's an occasional flicker of a shell. The enemy planes have gone. But look, one solitary Stuka is arriving in the blue. It must have been miles behind the others. As the barrage re erupts into fury, it is calmly positioning itself for its dive in a strange way although we are anxious for the safety of our precious ship all our hearts are with the enemy plane we are witnessing an act of superb courage he's starting his dive he's plummeting vertically downwards down 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 he's hit the whole tail has come off the mass of the machine veers for one drunken moment sideways and upwards the right wing snaps in two places the fragments drop untidily behind the hill time moves on and on and on Wearing my yellow May West, for I have taken over leadership, I wander away from the pen and, seating myself on the brink of a bomb hole, stare down into its rocky depths in silence. I glance occasionally towards Valletta, reappearing from its smoke pole in the distance, but I can't put back the hands of the clock. Two of our machines have not come back. One of them is Max. There's no news of him after he positioned the squadron magnificently. I think he is dead. The bus has just arrived with lunch, so I join the queue of airmen. Old Greg, the catering officer, and several of his helpers are handing out plates of food and mugs of tea through the splintered window frames. There's also free beer and free cigarettes, but I cannot face the food. A cup of tea is all that I need. As I sip the hot tea, I notice an Austin car, very square and upright, drawing up in a cloud of dust. Out gets the CO. The battle has gone well. Many Huns have been shot down. The ammunition ship is safe, and unloading it is well advanced, he proclaims. I quickly tell him. Hearing it, he withdraws into sudden silence. I've got to tell him more, although to mention my own trivial troubles in the same breath as the death of a gallant comrade overwhelms me with self-disgust. I I was not flying. I had some tummy trouble. I'm aware that I'm blushing with shame, so in order to soften the ghastly ignominy of my statement, I add that I'm better now. The CO contemplates me in silence. You don't look too well and you're not to fly, he replied, pausing in the thought. When you've finished your tea, take the Austin and report to the aerodrome controller in G-Shelter. He'll probably find a job for you, but take it easy. I don't want you laid up. I've been asleep. Oh, heavens, I must have fallen asleep. I've forced my eyes wide open. An airman standing by a steaming kettle in the corner of the G-shelter cavern is watching me, intently. But the wing commander controller has gone. Where is he? I ask sharply. Up on the roof, sir. I'm aware that the shudder of explosions has stopped. I glance at my watch, nearly half past six. I've been asleep five hours. The airman presses a hot cup of tea into my hands, but I haven't got time to drink it. As he has made it especially for me, I ask for some more condensed milk to cool it down. What happened in the raid, I ask him. Which raid, sir? The one after lunch. The Winco said that two eighty-eights and 487s have been blown to bits over Valletta, but when the spits came down they claimed seven more. That makes today's total well over 30. But there's another raid on now, sir. Thanking the airmen, I run up the steps into the sunlight, making my way towards the MT section. Four 109s, racing across the aerodrome, lead my eye to our dispersal pens. They are empty. The CO and the boys are airborne again. When I was last driving the Austin, its starboard front tyre had been exploded by a jagged lump of shrapnel. It has now been repaired, so I hasten to G-shelter roof. Standing in front of the wing commander and feeling bitterly ashamed of falling asleep, I report that the car is ready for action again. I'm given the job of visiting the pens to interview the newly arrived pilots to find out how many operational hours they've done. We're going to keep only those pilots who have flown over 50 and preferably over 100 hours in action against the enemy. Inexperienced men will be returned to England. Having covered half the aerodrome, I'm driving fast towards the next pen containing a Spitfire. There's a considerable noise of enemy aircraft and odd bursts of flak towards the north. As the Austin slithers to a standstill, I see the new pilot about to jump down into the slit trench. I call him over. I want your name, your total flying hours, your total hours on spits and your operational hours. I'm shocked by what he tells me. Another babe with no operational hours at all. Of all the pilots I've seen so far, only two qualify to remain here. It looks as if we'll have to keep some of these babes as replacements. As the young pilot looks at me, he glances furtively up at the sky. A formation of enemy bombers high up over Grand Harbour is heading towards us. I know he wants to get into the shelter but for both our sakes I want to appear indifferent to the immediate situation. Did you ever see an enemy plane before you arrived here yesterday? No sir. Well those machines up there must be your first Italians. They're Kant Z 1008s. I think the twin rudders on the dihedral tailplane look very pretty don't you? Then giving a broad mischievous wink and hoping not to spoil the impression by crashing the gears I accelerate vigorously down the perimeter track. The approaching formation with shells bursting furiously round it is much nearer. The Austin bucks and jumps over the potholes. With wheels locked, I slide into one of our empty dispersal pens. I join a party of eminent soldiers staring into the sky. The Italian bombers are no longer there. Two have gone, while the last one of all is dropping below a long trail of flaming debris. A huge machine, already quite low, tumbling over and over sideways in a series of convulsive jerks. Suddenly gushing with flame, it disintegrates into a shower of sparks. The blue sky is empty but for a white parachute not properly open which flapping and streaming behind the struggling figure is plunging down into the harbour smoke screen. There is a sudden glint of wings, a howl of Merlin engines as the victorious Spitfires race steeply round the aerodrome. One by one they come in to land. The CO taxis his machine towards us. As he climbs out of the cockpit we learn that it was but a brief encounter. Our squadron has destroyed the whole Italian formation. The day is ended. We are all back at Naxar, listening to the news broadcast from Rome Radio. We want to compare our claims with the losses the enemy admit. The Italians report that a powerful naval force has been attacked in Grand Harbour. Fantastic. The only ship in the harbour was the Welshman. She was not hit. The ammunition was successfully unloaded, and she has sailed away under cover of darkness. 37 Axis aircraft have failed to return from operations over Malta. Interesting. Just a few more than our defences claim axis planes rome radio continues have shot down 47 spitfires 47 spitfires never before have we been in a position to recognize such a flagrant propaganda lie we know the facts only two or three machines and only one raf pilot have been lost today the spitfire that i saw blown in half in the harbour barrage was one of our sergeant pilots called dixon the straps holding him into the cockpit snapped and he was thrown through the perspex roof he is safe with a gash in his leg. The price of our victory is max. Reluctantly, he is posted missing, believed killed. That's it for today. We'll be heading back to the heat of Malta soon. If you're enjoying this audiobook, you might be interested to know that we have nine free audiobooks on our members' site. It's £6 a month to join or $7.50 in the US. But for that, you get a weekly live show, lots of discussions with like-minded people and all those free audiobooks. You can join by going to patreon.com slash wehaveways. That's patreon spelt p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash wehaveways. More of One Man's Window coming soon.